Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is uh, with your host, Ahmed and Summer. On today's program, we're going to be speaking about the Nakba, or the catastrophe, which marks the 75th anniversary. It's been 75 years since this tragic event has impacted Palestinians. This is the day, same day that of the founding, um, when the State of Israel was founded, and uh, a Nakba, which is a catastrophe where Palestinians, uh, ethnic Palestinians from the region were removed, forcibly removed and ethnically cleansed from their land, or at least the beginning of it. Some will say that uh, the catastrophe is continuing until this day. Historic event happened this week at the United Nations where they commemorated for the first time uh, the Nakba officially and it was attended by um, the president of Palestine. Of course, uh, Israel, the Israeli government protested the move. We're going to be speaking with a guest speaker about that and possibly your phone calls. When we come back, this is True Talk on WMNF. We'll be back. To True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. This is um, our global 
fair show before we get into our program for today i wanted to share with you that our show will be changing times um we're going to be moving um to same day but at 12 o'clock starting june 1st so that's in two weeks we're going to be going to the noon o'clock hour summer we're changing to noon another uh change in time slot remember when we used to be on friday then we went to thursday and um now we're going to thursday at noon I'm excited about it, uh, Ahmed. It's a good time. I think people are usually uh, driving or uh, they are uh, taking their lunch break. So <laughs> it would be wonderful for them to be uh, listening to you and I uh, talk about these lovely subjects that only democracy now covers and some publications online. But when they listen to uh, mainstream media, they're not going to be listening to the topics that you and I uh, discuss Ahmed so I hope people will right. remember so just remember 12 o'clock noon we're going to be moving if you turn on WM and half at 11 o'clock for true talk we're not going to be there you're gonna to have to wait until noon on Thursday and that's going to start June 1st and shortly after that we're going to do our fund drive where we're going to be raising money um, maybe with a whole new audience. So I'm excited to uh, get to know our new audience and possibly uh, meet some new folks. But I want to make sure that our existing listeners continue with us to uh, and know our new time slot. I still have people that come up to me all the time and say, oh, why did your show, why isn't your show on the air anymore? And I wow. have to tell them we're no longer on Friday. We're actually on Thursday. Now I have to tell people again that the time is changing. So Thursday, every Thursday at noon on WMNF is True Talk Summer. Today we're going to be speaking about something called the Nekba. It's the 75th anniversary. It's been 75 years um, since this uh, catastrophe, which uh, Arabic, the word Nekba translates to catastrophe or disaster, um, happened. And what does Nekba mean to you as a Palestinian? Well, I was not born uh, by then, but it meant that poor uh, my mom and dad uh, have become refugees. My mom became a refugee inside Palestine itself because they were uh, they, they were living in Al Majdal, which is a small textile city on the Mediterranean, just north of Gaza, and they were uh, bombed. And uh, my mom and the neighbors all uh, ran, they were playing outside and all of a sudden uh, these bombs are falling and raining on them. They do not have shelters and they went in, the, all of them went to my mom's house. And I didn't find this from my mom actually, I found it from a guy who I met in a conference and he recognized my mom's last name and told me, uh, was your grandfather the son of a textile merchant. And I said, yes. And he told me, you're not going to believe this. But when uh, when they were bombing Il Majdal, we ran into your grandfather's house and my mom became a refugee in Gaza. My father uh, at age 17, I think, or 16, he was in the lid and uh, they were all forced to flee because they started killing all the young people uh, in a lid. It's a 
an operation, a military operation, very, very known, uh, even in the uh, modern history of uh, the Israeli uh, narrative and uh, historians, they talk about it with pride, how they finished off uh, the problem of a lid, which was a very um, uh, promising and flourishing uh, citrus industry. Uh, city in Lid, where my father uh, came from, and they were forced to flee to Jordan. And then my family, uh, my father's family, went to uh, Syria. From Syria, he went to work uh, for one year in Kuwait, saved enough money to get on a ship and come to Texas and study engineering. So, uh, for since that day, uh, you know, both my parents became uh, uh, refugees and uh, had no. A chance of visiting their homeland again. So I think uh, today we're going also, to talk. I mean, just yeah. just uh, before you introduce our guest, which also has denied you uh, your statehood, also as a Palestinian, and uh, your ability to return and live there if you wanted to, and I think this is impacting millions of people. So, um, as mentioned, we're speaking uh, about the catastrophe in Nakba, its 75th anniversary, and um, our guest is with us now. Samar, please introduce him. Uh, thanks, Ahmed. And uh, it's not only that my parents and millions of Palestinians ha cannot return, and uh, the destruction, probably uh, Jihad will talk about it, but it's the denial the denial that we exist, that there is something called Palestine and Palestinians and cuisine and food and accent and language. Actually, they appropriate everything about us. But let me just introduce our guest. I'm very excited actually to talk to him because I have listened to him speak before, but not on True Talk. He is Jihad Abu Salim. He is the executive director of the Jerusalem Fund, the Palestine Center that Jihad can tell us a little bit more about it. He's also a writer and a scholar. If you go to his website, you will find that he is a very prolific writer. Uh, he actually just published in the new in, the, in these times a publication called In These Times, a very interesting article. It is long, but very, very important for people to uh, read. It's called The Attack on Al-Aqsa and the Specter of uh, Second Nakba, which I'm hoping Jihad will be talking about it. He's also the writer and co-writer of uh, many books. One of them, I think, uh, is called uh, Writings Born in Fire or uh, Light in Gaza, Writings Born in Fire. Good morning, Jihad. I know you have written so much, but <laughs> I just mentioned maybe the book and the article. Good to have you on True Talk, Jihad. Thanks so much for your kind introduction and for uh, having me on, on the show, Summer. Thank you. As we speak, uh, Jihad, I know we're, we we want to talk about the Nakba and its meaning for you, your family, the Palestinians. It's been 75 years, although preparing for it really started many, many uh, years before. But something is going on today in Jerusalem. I hope I'm not uh, catching you off guard, but there is something called, there is some issues are happening now in Jerusalem, especially in Al-Aqsa Mosque, where you wrote your la latest piece on. So can you tell our uh, listeners what is going on? Why, why thousands of police are there uh, in Jerusalem now? 
uh, unfortunately for the residents of Jerusalem, they have to deal with uh, what we call in Arabic Masirat al-A'lam or in, uh, in English, uh, the flags march. And it's a, it's a provocative Israeli march that happens every year. Uh, where uh, Israeli extremists and uh, fanatics march through the old city of Jerusalem, uh, waving Israeli flags, chanting racist slogans, uh, such as, quote-unquote, death to Arabs, and Muhammad is dead, in referring to the Muslim prophet, uh, Prophet Muhammad. And... uh, also chanting slogans such as may your villages burn this is a racist march it's a, it's a, it's a racist expression um, it's been happening since 1968 one year uh, following the israeli occupation of uh, east jerusalem um, and basically those uh, israeli extremists uh, right-wing fanatics, they march through the old city, passing through streets where Palestinian Muslims and Christians live. And uh, the the march ends and concludes near the Ha'at uh, al-Buraq, or the Western Wall. And, uh, you know, the... The person who inspired this this march, this annual protest, um, was Rabbi Cook, who was the spiritual leader um, for religious Zionism, uh, a form of Zionism that centers a certain interpretation of the Jewish faith and sees the Zionist movement as a... Uh, uh, as an expression of the Jewish re- religion and Jewish faith, which is, of course, um, one of many interpretations uh, of Judaism, uh, some of which don't agree with this vision. Uh, this march started in 1968 um, as a minuscule uh, phenomenon, um, but as Israel uh, you know, uh, shifted towards the right wing. Um, This uh, small march has become, over the years, uh, larger in scale. And I think, and you know, as I mentioned when I started uh, answering your question, it is a, uh, a difficult day for Palestinians in Jerusalem because you have these settlers, these extremists marching through the old city, uh, Palestinians who live there, worshippers, visitors, um, their lives are disrupted. Uh, Palestinian merchants and business owners have to close their shops. Um, The Israeli police um, disrupts the lives of Palestinians. Why? Because a bunch of extremists and fanatics need to march through the old city and chant racist slogans. And of course, the Israeli state, uh, the police, the military, they do their best in order to facilitate this march and to provide 
the necessary protection um, and shielding for those protesters who uh, want to march through the streets and alleys of the old city and chant the racist slogans. So this is basically, it's, it's, a, it's a, a statement of control. It's a statement of claiming the space. It's a statement of, as you mentioned, um, denying Palestinian existence and basically telling the Palestinians that Jerusalem is uh, on its path to become uh, an Israeli space. It's on its way to, to be fully claimed by Zionists and Palestinians have no place in, 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 in their city, in their capital. Um, and, and this is, of course, not implicit. It's uh, these protesters, these marchers, they explicitly say that when they chant death to Arabs and when they chant Muhammad is dead or when they chant may your villages burn. Uh, it is a very difficult day for Palestinians in Jerusalem indeed. Uh, actually, uh, Jihad, you're being very polite because I know we are uh, on uh, uh, the radio waves. We can't even uh, mention uh, the kind of words, uh, the terrible words and racist words they use, uh, whether against us as Palestinians and culture, but also against the Prophet Muhammad and the rest of the Arabs. I know you can't even translate them and we cannot utter them on uh, uh, the radio, but um, it, it is in an, you you wrote about, for instance, Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, during Ramadan. Um, and I know that because of the flag uh, march, uh, what they call it, the flag march, a couple of years ago, there was a, a war uh, that took place. Do you think the, the march this year was subdued because uh, uh, the resistance movements in uh, Gaza mentioned that they will not uh, sit quietly because there are plans to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque? I mean, these people have um, uh, prototypes of how they're going to destroy Al-Aqsa, how they're going to build the, the, their uh, temple. So you think it was... Um, the, the resistance movement's uh, threats that came out of uh, Jerusalem uh, made it a little bit more lame this year? Um, I mean, I think, I think there were concerns in the Israeli media and uh, in, in the Israeli public discourse about whether this march will trigger uh, a confrontation with the Palestinians, whether it will lead to a Palestinian reaction, um, and whether, you know, whether there will be a Palestinian uh, reaction in the form of, uh, you know, military or armed escalation or not. Um, it is evident at this point that, you know, at least for the Israeli media, for the Israeli public, that this march is uh, something that uh, upsets Palestinians. It's something that makes Palestinians uh, really unhappy. And whether there will be an escalation this this uh, because of this march or not, we are going through uh, uh, a context in Palestine of uh, recurring escalation. Um, uh, some call it a war of attrition um, from the standpoint of the Palestinian fac factions 
others you know view it as uh, uh, you know uh, a continuation of Israel's aggressive policies but no matter what happens today it has it's become clear and it's become evident that Jerusalem is uh, an important battleground uh, for Palestinians to preserve their existence to preserve uh, their identity and to assert their right in their homeland. Um, Palestinian love and appreciation for Jerusalem does not only stem from uh, religious affinity and from the fact that Jerusalem is a holy city. It's it's a holy city for Muslims. It's a holy city for Christians, and it's also sacred for Jews. Um, and 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 Palestine is a country that historically honored. Uh, the three monotheistic religions. I mean, if you look at Palestine a century ago, what were the most important uh, annual religious festivals that Palestinians celebrated? Palestinians celebrated a religious festival named after Prophet Moses, Mawsim and Nabi Musa. Palestinians had an annual religious festival uh, honoring a prophet named Daniel, who wasn't a Muslim prophet. Uh, Palestinians... Uh, you know, revere Al-Aqsa because they consider it part of the monotheistic tradition. Palestinians' problem isn't with, you know, Jews or Judaism having a part in, in the city of Jerusalem. Palestinians have an issue with Israel because Israel seeks to impose a single narrative on the city of Jerusalem. Israel seeks to um, uh, impose a single narrative and a single history and actively works on disregarding the Arab connection, the Muslim connection, the Christian connection to the city. And this is what concerns Palestinians. And therefore, Al-Aqsa Mosque, as I mentioned in my article, becomes a, a, a symbol that captures the, the entire essence of why Palestinians are fighting. Palestinians are fighting for their existence. And for Palestinians, if Israel uh, is capable of uh, assaulting Palestinian rights in Jerusalem, assaulting Palestinian symbols in Jerusalem, assaulting Palestinian sites of historic uh, significance, Palestinian sites that have that are part of what defines Palestinian heritage and history, then Israel, if Israel gets away of, with all of these things, then Israel can get away with assaulting the entirety of the Palestinian people and their existence. So Jerusalem is a metaphor for our existence as people. It's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, an issue of religion. Religion is part of the story, but it's an issue of control. It's an issue of power, and it's, an, it's a question of existence. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to Jihad Abu Salim. Abu Salim, he's the executive director of the DC-based the Jerusalem Fund, and um, it's an educational program. We're speaking about the Nagba, or also known as the catastrophe. Um, you know, the the Nagba is uh, was commemorated the first time this year or this week uh, at the United Nations, and there was a lot of anger 
coming out of the Israeli government um, about this symbolic event. And um, what what and they have it. They they think this is anti-Semitic, etc. And they don't necessarily see it from the perspective from the Palestinian perspective. Just for our listeners that are not that are not familiar, what is the Nakba mean to Palestinians um, back then and then today? Thank you for this important question, Ahmed. Um, you know, just for the sake of comparison, imagine if, um, let's say, uh, there's a country named X and X invades the United States uh, and decides to uh, basically uh, expel overnight uh, more than 200 million Americans, uh, relocate them to Canada, Mexico, and to other parts of the U.S. that weren't claimed by Invader X. Um, This would be a disaster for people. This would be a huge disruption for those Americans who would be impacted by this reality. And this is exactly what happened in 1948 when, uh, when the state of Israel was established uh, on 78% of the area of uh, mandatory Palestine or historic Palestine, um, the state of Israel was not established in a vacuum. It wasn't established in a land that was empty. The state of Israel was established on lands owned by Palestinians, on lands where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians lived. Uh, Palestine before 1948 was a thriving country. Uh, Palestine was a, you know, Samar was talking about the citrus industry, but it wasn't only that. Palestine was uh, a thriving Mediterranean country with a decent economy, with, you know, uh, uh, cities, towns and villages that were connected. Uh, There were uh, a Palestinian people who had uh, a pre-nationalist, consciousness that they were a people who belonged to one country. And as nationalism evolved, they identified as a Palestinian Arab nation. Um, And Palestinians, after World War I, they were hoping to achieve independence and to build their country and to, uh, you know, uh, have build their institutions and, and live like every other nation on earth. However, uh, the Zionist movement uh, coming from Europe, backed by the British, uh, worked on establishing a state uh, for uh, uh, the Jewish people in Palestine, uh, something that wasn't a topic, a subject of consensus within Jewish communities around the world. Um, and it was just one answer to growing oppression against Jews worldwide. But unfortunately, the direction that the Zionist movement took throughout the first half of the 20th century was to pursue the establishment of uh, Jewish Zionist statehood in Palestine at the expense of the Palestinians. And and this is the, the essence of the problem. The Zionist movement, when it came to Palestine, refused to see Palestinians as a nation refused to uh, view Palestinians as people who had deep historic 
strong roots in their country. It viewed Palestinians as disposable. It viewed Palestinians as people who could basically expelled and removed, and they would eventually move on. From their point of view, the Palestinians said, no, we aren't going to accept removal from our country in order to, uh, you know, make way for the establishment of this state, the Zionist movement, so to establish. Uh, Palestinians said that they are people who lived in this uh, country for centuries, who built it. It's the place where they buried their ancestors. It's the place where they built cities and towns and villages, uh, mosques and churches. It's the place where they celebrate their heritage and identify with the land and uh, and and honor the land and 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 honor the nature and honor everything about this this land where they have existed for 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 over a millennium and this so this is the root of the problem the root of the problem is uh, is the fact that the, there was a state named Israel that was established uh, on the ruins of Palestinian cities and villages and towns that the Zionist militias and what would become the core of the Israeli military uh, ethnically cleansed in 1948, in 1949, and into 1950. And this, and if if the world doesn't want to acknowledge what happened in 1948, then the only like evidence for you know the Nakba is the fact that it continues. It continues in the West Bank, where Palestinians uh, are every day. Their lands are being seized. Uh, fences are being built. It, it, the Nakba continues in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where f- Palestinian refugees from 1948 are about to become refugees for the second time because Israel wants to, uh, uh, you know, expel people from their homes in order to, uh, uh, you know, bring Jewish families and have them live in Palestinian homes. The Nakba continues in Masafar Yatta, the Nakba continues in Gaza, the Nakba continues in the fact that there is uh, a, that millions of Palestinians are forced to dwell in refugee camps till the present day, just for Israel to maintain its Jewish majority uh, demographics. So this is the reality that Palestinians have been dealing with since 1948. Uh, Palestinians, you know, I tweeted the other day that Palestinians choosing to, uh, uh, you know, honor the 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 memories of of their of their ancestors and Palestinian rejection to accept partition and expulsion. This is something honorable. The world should be grateful that Palestinians are doing this because who wants to live in a world that legitimizes? Um, the seizing of property and the expulsion of people and the creation of uh, geographic and demographic realities uh, at gunpoint and this is what palestinians are fighting against and 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 freedom and preservation of right and property is what palestinians are fighting for it is a simple story right and um it's simple it's so simple and so obvious however Israel and the Israeli narrative, and if you hear and listen to members of Congress in Washington, uh, D.C., um, 
it's a complete, completely different narrative. I mean, you've got people that will even claim that there was nothing there when the Israelis showed up and somehow these Arabs are trying to deny Israel's its um, biblical right to the land. Um, if you've listened recently in, you know, the president of the EU, when she gave her video uh, message to celebrate or uh, commend the state of Israel on their 75th uh, anniversary, you know, that they, she made remarks about um, that, you know, that they've made the desert bloom as if there was nothing there that existed. How is this the dominant narrative in the United States and, and for, you know, much of Europe that um, somehow that, you know, that this, that this catastrophe never happened? Unfortunately, it is, this narrative is dominant because, um, uh, of the alliance between the United States uh, and Israel, an alliance rooted in geopolitical factors. It's rooted in uh, uh, a the military-industrial complex and what that entails. And in terms of the EU, um, Europeans feel guilty for uh, what happened in the Holocaust and instead of, uh, you know, facing uh, their racism and bravely questioning why an event like the on, on the scale of the Holocaust happened in their midst and why uh, Europe was uh, a breeding ground for fascism and harmful ideologies such as the Nazi ideology, instead of all of this, they they uh, they support the state of Israel and uh, they provide it with unconditional support and uh, the victims here are the Palestinians and and I think and I think we we need to talk about how Europe isn't dealing with its with its uh, legacies of fascism, Nazism, racism, colonialism. Um, and, and today, you know, in Europe, we are witnessing the growing uh, Islamophobia, the anti-refugee sentiment, the rise of right-wing movement. And it's as if they didn't learn anything from World War II and what happened in Europe then. And as a Palestinian, I'm always, I'm always in awe of the audacity of these European officials who think that, you know, they can... Uh, process their guilt that, you know, they probably had ancestors who were on the wrong side uh, during World War II by paying lip service to Israel and by supporting the state of Israel in, in, in this way at the expense of Palestinian humanity, at the expense of Palestinian history, at the expense of the right of Palestinians to live in honor and in dignity and have human rights in their country. So this is just this is one aspect of the of the problem. Another aspect of the problem is the general tendency to dismiss Palestinians, and it's a tendency that's rooted in in, in a colonial attitude, an attitude that does not view uh, people who come from the Middle East, people who come from Africa, people who come from uh, the non-European parts of the world as. Uh, you know, uh, people who have who are civilized, people who are 
who are deserving of independence, of self-determination, of rights, and so on and so forth. It is shocking uh, to see this kind of attitude linger uh, when it comes to Palestinians, although it's become very difficult to find it elsewhere. But this is, it's, it's pure racism and it's pure disregard uh, for the humanity of Palestinians and a, and, and, and a tendency to erase them and deny that they have uh, they have rights. And to, again, you know, like when 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 someone when a, a European Union official comes out and says um, Zionists made the desert bloom, the assumption here is that before Israel there was nothing, as you said. But we all know this is a lie. And even Zionists knew that there were Palestinians who lived in Palestine, who had cities, who had towns, who lived in villages, who built mosques, who had, you know, uh, towns and cities that are inhabited now by Israelis. And Israelis proudly list Palestinian homes in Jaffa and in, in other parts of historic Palestine they proudly list them on Airbnb as exotic and, uh, and you know, uh, places where you could have an experience of the Orient. But they knew. You know, Zahar, what... I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but because, again, I want to, just to uh, remind our listeners, we're talking to Jihad Abu Salim, director of the Jerusalem Fund. But because you mentioned that in particular, and when I visited my uh, grandfather's farm in Palestine, uh, which was very known uh, because, um, you know, their, their oranges used to reach uh, Europe, uh, the, the land was barren. And I asked the lady who is living there, and we're talking acres and acres and acres. I said, there is not one single orange tree. She said, and the, you know, the, the don't believe the myth that they sell to the world. They came and uprooted every single uh, tree mm -hmm. uh, because uh, jihad, uh, this area is called the Dahmash, uh, the Dahmash village. It's uh, mainly populated by Palestinians uh, of uh, Arab descent, of course. So what they did is they went and uprooted actually every single citrus uh, tree uh, that is there and the other thing that i don't know if you agree with me or yet or not but if you belong really to that part of the land if you really want to follow uh, the, the prophets of judaism although moses never set foot in palestine but didn't they travel in sandals didn't they have beards uh, didn't their women cover didn't they have a desert didn't they have camels? I mean, what is this European racist view that the desert is not good enough? It, the desert is part of that land. I mean, in Palestine, there is there are lakes, there are rivers, there are mountains, there are green prairies, but there is also half of Palestine is a desert. Don't you see that this is such a racist thing to say? Of course, I mean it's it's a, it's an obsession with with the opposite. You know, it's it's a colonial view that goes back to the the era of high colonialism. Um, the view that you know there is 
uh, it's, it's a binary view that views the world through the, the, the lens of European versus non-European, civilized versus non-civilized, uh, uh, you know, educated versus savage. This is the kind of worldview that these people espouse when it comes to our part of the world, unfortunately. And, and unfortunately, this is normalized in the case of Palestine. If anybody, uh, I don't think a European uh, official would be able to, you know, make a, a statement like that about any other country, except when it comes to Palestine, it's normalized. But, but again, you know, at the end of the day, I think, I think the, the question here is, is not whether Palestine was empty or not. Even Zionists knew that it wasn't empty because some of them were there. Some of them were active. Uh, some of them were working on building, you know, the early settlements that they established. But for them, when they say, you know, the, the famous quote, um, a land without a people, for a people without a land, meaning, refer, refer, you know, uh, referring to Palestine as a land without a people, this doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, that it was physically empty. It means that even when Palestinians, even if Palestinians live there, in their view, it's an empty land because they don't view Palestinians as people who are deserving of living in that land. And they don't view the Palestinian connection to the land as a real connection. They, and and this, is, this is a dangerous way of looking at this quote, um, which uh, was used to justify the Zionist colonial project in Palestine. It's not, it's not about physical existence or lack thereof. It's about what, whose existence is worthwhile and whose existence means something, whose existence has meaning and has purpose and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and needs to be honored. In their view, the Palestinians are disposable. They can be get rid of, they can be expelled. But this is, you know, uh, this is, they took a gamble. They took a gamble because Palestinians, turns out, have deep roots in their country. They love their country, like any people on earth. They, it's the country, like I said, where they buried their ancestors. It's the country they cultivated for generations and generations. It's the country where they built towns and built cities and built houses and built mosques and built churches. And it's the country they understand the the you know and, and 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 know they know every herb they know every every rock they know every corner of it and they understand it and they love it and this is the root of the problem here the root of the problem is that the zionists came they assumed they can get away with expelling palestinians turning them into refugees palestinians would just vanish and go away and i think it was uh, a huge miscalculation on their part if you're just joining us, this, this is True Talk, and we're speaking to uh, Jihad Abu Salim. He is the executive director of the D.C.-based Jerusalem Fund um, in uh, Washington. We're speaking about the Nakba, or the catastrophe, that happened 75 years ago with the expulsion and the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, uh, from uh, what was uh, called Palestine, and um, that happened at the hands of 
the Zionist movement and the establishment of a state called Israel, which did not exist before. And um, since then, uh, that area has been under occupation. And the Israeli narrative has been to deny that such catastrophe or expulsion or ethnic cleansing has taken place. But uh, 75 years ago, when this happened, this didn't happen in a vacuum. This was actually premeditated. Uh, can you talk about the role that Britain played in making this possible? And how, would it have been possible without the British support? I mean, you know, reading back that this project to establish uh, what happened in 1947 and 48, a state of Israel actually started in 1917 or even before that. I was reading that shortly after that the British Empire uh, declared war on the Ottoman Empire uh, in 1914, that within a few months, uh, there were already meetings and discussions on, um, you know, how to... Uh, turn, you know, Palestine into a Jewish state. So maybe, I, you know, we don't have a long time for a history lesson, but what was the role of the British in establishing and uh, facilitating this catastrophe? Um, the British uh, played a cynical role in uh, in determining the 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 future of Palestine after they occupied the country. Uh, in 1917, 1918, uh, around the end of the First World War, um, the British had, you know, they 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 were uh, an empire. They had an empire. They viewed Palestine as uh, a strategic uh, uh, asset. Uh, Palestine is uh, close to the Suez Canal. Uh, the Suez Canal was important for trade, for, uh, uh, you know, British uh, ships, military and, and trade ships crossing from India through the Suez Canal to the to Europe and Britain. Uh, the British also, um, uh, you know, took great interest in Palestine, given its location. Palestine is Asia's gate to Africa and Africa's gate to Asia. Um, so, you know, the, the British came with standard colonial calculations, uh, traditional imperialist considerations. They wanted Palestine. They wanted to have a stronghold there. Um, and in, in that context, they viewed the Zionist movement as an ally that can be relied on uh, and that if they empowered uh, the Zionists, the Zionists would be able to uh, preserve uh, British interests in the, in the region, um, especially also with the discovery of oil and, and so on and so forth. So after, during World War I, the British made commitments to the Arabs uh, to, uh, that if the Arabs allied with them against the Ottomans, they would help the Arabs achieve independence. But they also uh, uh, made a commitment to the, to, the, to the Zionist movement through the Balfour Declaration to establish a uh, Jewish national home in Palestine. And uh, after the establishment of the British mandate, um, uh, in Palestine in the early 20s, 
the British colonial administration made its uh, made its made it its commitment to facilitate Jewish immigration to Palestine and to give preferential treatment to Palestine's uh, uh, Zionist minority to uh, build state-like institutions, to uh, be able to build the infrastructure needed for future statehood. Um, it armed and trained uh, Zionist militias, uh, especially during the 1936 Arab uprising, Arab revolt in Palestine, which was one of the largest and biggest uh, anti-colonial revolts during the first half of the 20th century. And in fact, until the present day, a lot of the collective punishment uh, and, and counterinsurgency practices that are adopted by the Israeli military have their roots in the uh, in the British colonial uh, era. So, for example, home demolition and collective punishment, these are things that the British introduced and then the Zionists adopted and, and perfected later on. Um, the British also, uh, you know, for, for them, supporting Zionism uh, also had uh, uh, served uh, certain segments of the British government and British society that, uh, you know, uh, identified with Zionism for religious reasons. So uh, there were many factors, and, I, and, and, and definitely, you know, the tragedy of Palestine is part of the legacy of cynical colonial attitude rooted in, uh, in uh, you know, uh, temporary brief calculations, uh, selfishness, and, and unfortunately, Palestinians are still paying the price for, for, for what the British did. The British, in, instead of, uh, you know, creating a vision for coexistence in Palestine, instead of creating some sort of an arrangement for Palestine's population to live peacefully, they, uh, they supported the, the creation of a, a state that uh, eventually ethnically cleansed Palestine's Arab majority population and, uh, and still uh, seeks to expel more Palestinians and basically turn and, and make their lives impossible in their country. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM, and we're talking to Jihad Abu Salim. He's an executive director of the Jerusalem Fund, which is based in Washington, D.C. Jihad, in your uh, very interesting article, again, the name of it is The Attack on Al-Aqsa and the Spectre of a Second Nakba. Why do you fear uh, a second Nakba? Is it possible uh, in this time and age where there is, I mean, more communication, more cameras? Like as we speak to you and as I'm listening, while you're having this conversation with Ahmed, I am looking at Twitter. Uh, every few seconds, I get a new feed about photos about uh, these young uh, boys who are uh, taught hate, probably at a very young age, they are spitting at Palestinians who are at their shops in the old um, city in, inside uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, they're spitting and they're so afraid even uh, of spitting at the armless Palestinians. And they have this uh, um, uh, police uh, totally um, armed and they are beating the Palestinians. Uh, but why do you fear another Nakba? What is it that is scaring you at at this time? Um, when I talk about the possibility of a second Nakba, 
uh, I don't mean to say that the first Nakba has ended. We are living the first Nakba. The first Nakba started before 1948, reached its zenith in 1948, and still continues until the present day. Um, but the but the f- first Nakba of 1948, uh, you know, it, it it included a large and like a, events of large scale expulsion of 1948. But after that, the the next chapter of large scale expulsion happened in 1967. I mean, in 1967, more than 300,000 Palestinians were also. Uh, uh, expelled from their homes uh, 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 or uh, ethnically cleansed. Um, So this is the kind of, uh, you know, the the Nakba is a process. The Nakba is uh, like a daily event that's been happening. Uh, All these policies of building settlements and moving settlers into the West Bank, which is contrary to international law, seizing Palestinian land and property and homes. Uh, this makes the possibility of another large-scale expulsion uh, something that we should be worried about. Uh, we have a state, a nuclear state, armed with, with, the, with the strongest means, armed means in the world, backed by the world's most powerful states, the US, the EU, and this state um, has a leadership, a ruling coalition that includes ministers and officials who casually talk about the need to get rid of Palestinians, about the need to end the Palestinian question, about the need for Palestinian surrender. And when you have people in power positions who adopt these beliefs. And at the same time, you have a growing uh, movement on the ground of armed settlers who uh, are backed by the Israeli military and are capable of committing uh, uh, pogroms like the one we saw in the village of Huwara and uh, and, uh, and are acting uh, and and, and feel empowered to attack Palestinians, eventually this is going to escalate into a large-scale confrontation between Palestinians and between these settlers. And eventually Palestinians will not accept the fact that, you know, every day of their lives is just a piece of hell. You have, sorry, we have to uh, cut you off because we're out of time. But um... Sure. As we enter so, uh, news is coming up. This is WMNF. No, no problem. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to, to emphasize that the second Nakba is, can be possible, but stopping it is also possible. And that's why we need people's support. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jihad. Uh, WMNF Tampa, NPR News uh, should start any minute now. And don't forget.